Good morning, CLC. It's so good to be with you. Um, It's so good to be together, particularly during this Advent series of Anticipating Christmas, because it's such a busy time. And when Pastor Andrew asked me to speak on this topic of moving from work to rest and this invitation, I thought, wow, what a great topic, so needed at this time. And I know a lot about the need to rest, because as Andrew said, I'm a mother of three, um, and those of us who are MYFs, mothers of young children, I spelled that wrong, MYCs, mothers of young children know what that need is like. We may not know what rest is like, but we know that need very well. Um, And to give you an example and put it in perspective, our three kids are in the same room, and they sleep in the same room with bunk beds and a mattress on the floor, and um, I was putting them to bed, the nine-year-old, the seven-year-old, and the four-year-old, and suddenly I found myself fully clothed at 5 a.m. on the upper bunk because I had fallen asleep while putting them to bed. Uh, And this happened three nights in a row. So I know something about the need for rest, and if you should take a little Z's while I'm talking, I will say you're applying my sermon, so I will not take that personally. That's God um, being faithful to you right here. So this morning, as we anticipate Christmas together as a community, we're going to talk about work and rest in the Advent season, and we're going to wrestle with the question, in the midst of our real life, not the ideal life, where everything has its place and is perfect, but in the chaos of our real life, how do we embrace the rest that Jesus offers us? And how do we do so so we're ready to receive this little baby, this present that is coming, with praise, joy, and adoration instead of stress and exhaustion? This is something I've struggled with, especially since becoming a mom, because there's so much to do when Christmas comes and you have children. You want it to be special for them and special for everybody. Um, So let's start by examining our culture. How does our culture observe Christmas and prepare for this time? And then let's contrast that with the Christian tradition. So let's start with Thanksgiving, one of my favorite holidays. I think our country does this very well. We're very thankful. We actually take two days off. Everything stops for the most part. Um, We have pumpkin pie, gravy stuffing. My parents are here from Honolulu. Um, So we're enjoying family. We enjoy community. We enjoy food. We are thankful. Um, We go to bed with our hearts full and our bellies bulging. That's Thanksgiving. And we say as Americans, thank you, Lord. I'm just so thankful for everything that I have. And then the next morning, we run out to Best Buy, and we buy all the stuff that we need because it's Black Friday. So our culture anticipates Christmas the Black Friday way. It begins with the biggest retail event of the season, and it's our cue to start the work of anticipating Christmas, which includes... Shopping for presents, trimming the tree, pulling together our Christmas cards, addressing them, mailing them with a seasonal stamp, Um, wrapping presents for families, friends, neighbors, teachers, bringing food, hosting parties, uh, work parties, school parties, friends parties, our families are in town, and the calendar for Advent becomes more of a countdown calendar, like the Williams-Sonoma sign in the window, 17 days left till Christmas, instead of a calendar that reminds us that we're supposed to be anticipating the birth of Jesus. Um, And we have our definition culturally of all the work that needs to get done, and it has to start the day after Thanksgiving and race all the way through uh, Christmas Eve. But in our Christian tradition, what does anticipating Christmas look like for us? Uh, What does Advent mean? We may not all know this, but in the Christian tradition, it's a liturgical tradition, which is actually modeled after Genesis and how God created God created um, 
many things, all of creation, um, and he had some rhythm to it. So Advent is actually, in the Christian tradition, the start of the new year. So although we think of it as the end of our year, what if this was the beginning of our year? We actually started our New Year's resolutions today. Um, That's kind of provocative. Um, In the Advent season, it's a time of prayer, of preparation, and of penitence. Um, And Advent in the dictionary is actually the uh, the coming or arrival, especially of something very important. So that's what the season is about. And we have other seasons in the Christian tradition, like Lent to prepare for Easter, um, and Advent to prepare for Christmas. So what if the season, our Advent resolution, was to embrace a countercultural Christmas season? What if, we had, what if we anticipated Christmas the Advent way, through prayer, preparation, and penitence for December 25th? Pretty different picture, right, than what Williams-Sonoma might say. And I was at Williams-Sonoma yesterday, so I know it's 17 days. Um, can we slow down instead of speeding up? Can we embrace Pastor Andrew's invitation to come to Christmas and do it differently here at CLC? When Jesus came, he was a huge gift to us, the biggest gift we could ever get. Can we focus on what's most important? Okay, so now that we know the countercultural view of Christmas, let's talk about moving from work to rest. We'll start with work. Who works here? Inside the home, outside the home, as a student. All of us work. There's a lot of work to be done. And we in the Bay Area, we are very good at work. Like, we should get trophies Whether we're a stay-at-home mom or whether we're a full-time professional, we know how to work hard. We actually work smart. We work by multitasking. Um, And this is something that we do very well, as Pastor Andrew talked about. So how does God view our work? And then how does our culture view our work? We're going to contrast those two again. Um, We'll start with how God works. So when God created the heavens and the earth in Genesis, God saw all that he made. And he made a lot of stuff. It sounds kind of like Christmas, but more. He made darkness and light, seas and sky, day and night, seasons, birds, animals, fish, humans. In six days, God created, and he designed and breathed the world into being. That's kind of a lot of stuff to be done. Um, and, and he says, when he saw all that was made on the sixth day, it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. And thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. So our God is a working God, and we see that in the book of Genesis. It's in God's nature to work. So Adam and me are made in God's image. We are made in God's image. Work is good. Work is God-given, and that's something that we embrace um, as followers of Christ. Um, And all of these things happen pre-fall. So I know there's this idea of, oh, fall, but it's toil and angst. And um, sometimes it can be. That that is a picture of what can happen to work. But work in its original state is something that God does as he creates. Um, And when God begins the story, he actually begins by creating in the Garden of Eden. um, And that's in Genesis. But in Revelation, he tells us the end will be um, in a city. And so a lot of building goes on. The building of God's kingdom, Um, our role as kind of having dominion over the earth, um, that all is good. But work in its corrupted state becomes idolatry. Let's talk about this, because as a working person outside the home, I struggle with this a lot. Um, And it's the nature of our culture, and especially in the Bay Area, and I would say especially as Asian Americans, to idolize work. Why is that? Because 
our culture naturally orients against that. When you meet somebody at a holiday party that you don't know, what's the first thing you ask them? Anybody? Yeah. You ask them, hi, I'm Priscilla. Where do you work? Um, And that's just the way that we define ourselves. It's an easy thing to talk about. Um, So whether our work is secular or Christian, it can become a badge. It can become part of our identity, the marker we wear to the world. I am a devoted mom. That could be my answer. I'm building God's kingdom on earth. That could be an answer. I'm the best fill-in-the-blank doctor, mom, lawyer, teacher I can be because work is um, God-given and we work in God's image. However, if work becomes something that we make a pledge to, if work becomes the marker and the way we identify ourselves and how we get our self-worth and how we identify ourselves to the rest of the world, that is idolatry. We are putting trust in an idol and not in God. And this is a hard one to really distill because I think as Asian Americans, we're very hardworking, right? We're very loyal. So this idea of when Colin and I worked with Harvard students, they would challenge me and say, Priscilla, don't you think that because I can be the best, I should be? And these people really, they could be the best, right? And I said to this woman, I'm like, maybe not. God's given you gifts, but it's all about what God's purpose is for you on this earth, and that's not something I can answer. But the automatic response is not to, like, work the hardest to be the best in your field. It's something you need to work out between you and God. I know that I get some identity from being a mom. Um, I also get some identity from helping to provide for my family. But when I start to secure my hope in this and believe that this work actually brings me my future and it's what I can rely on, that's when it becomes an idol for me. Because I'm actually treating it as something that can give me something in return. Which in the ancient times, an idol was a wooden object. So it's like talking to like the pew and saying, like, pew, thank you for giving me everything I am. Like, that is how we see it in God's eyes, because there are no idols. We have no other gods we worship. It is only the one and true God that gives us what we need. So we need to find our identity as God's beloved. Receiving his blessing, his nurture, the resources as our sole provider, because that is the only version of truth that is scriptural. Um, So let's work unto the Lord for an audience of one. What would that mean for us? It's so cliche, this audience of one thing, but I really wanted to talk about it, because if really the only opinion that mattered in the world was not yours or your parents or your coworkers or your boss or the other parents at school, but if it really was the Lord of the universe, how would your life be different? How would you live it differently? I think that question is pretty provocative if we really wrestle with it. And this Advent season, as we move from work to rest, that's something I'd like us to think about. To bring this to life, I'm going to tell two stories, because um, I like telling stories. And, the fir- and both of these are real. Um, the fir- one's from Wikipedia, so it has to be checked. But the first story is from my life. <laughs> so this summer, um, Pastor Andrew actually exaggerates a little bit. I've spoken at one conference with thousands of people. But this summer, I was asked to speak at a convention for Asian American professionals. And um, it was at Disneyland, so of course I said yes, even though it was on Saturday. Usually I'm like, no, Saturday, that's a family day. They said Disneyland. I was like, bring it on. Um, And I invited anybody who wanted the discount to come with me. And so we actually had six families there, so it was pretty fun. Um, But I was working, and there was a private dinner at this Napa Rose restaurant. Do you guys know this restaurant? It's in the Grand California. Do you know the Grand Californian? I wasn't staying there, by the way, but uh, it's a beautiful hotel. It's like 
um, inspired by Frank Lloyd Wright, but on massive proportions. And um, I was included in the invite list because I was a speaker, not because I was on the special list of CEOs and all those things. Um, so when I got there, they were serving, like, free appetizers and drinks. I was in, like, a version of Chinese Disneyland heaven. Um, and it was so much fun. Uh, and then we were s- seated at dinner, and I got s- sat between two retired business people, um, two gentlemen. And they were both very accomplished in their field. One was in accounting, and one was in aerospace. And it was a very interesting thing. So I'm going to tell you the story um, because it gave me a picture of, like, what work can be in the end game. So the man on my right took an interest in me because he liked what I had to say at the, at the talk, and he, he gave me advice. He said, you must fight. You must fight every day to ensure your accomplishments are known and your talents are not overlooked. You must work to get exposure to the right people, make champions in high places so you have advocates and protection. And this was during a time when actually, you may, may or may not know in my work, it's an upper-out culture. I was getting a lot of like, signs that like, things weren't going well. So I was hanging on his every word. I'm like, oh, I've never heard that before. Wow, that's um, interesting advice. Uh, And he said, you know, I want you to be really successful because Asian Americans and a woman no less in the work world, it's going to be really hard for you. You're not going to be seen as a natural leader, et cetera. So you have to fight to have a seat at the table. Um, So that was kind of cool that he believed in me and saw me as successful. And then to my left, as dessert was being served, and it was chocolate mousse, the main dish was filet mignon. Um, this man next to me said, and he looked me straight out. He goes, I want you to know there is no such thing as work-life balance. Anyone who tells you there's work-life balance is lying to you. I was like, wow, um, I don't even know you. Um, but, but, but then I go, well, why do you say that? What makes you say that? He's like, I've seen, too, I've seen it too many times. Um, so don't waste mental or emotional energy on that. You just have to make your choice and live with it. And I asked a little bit more, and he said, well, let me give you an example. My son's favorite song, and this will date me and maybe you, um, is Cat Stevens' Cats in the Cradle. This is a song about, like, a, a man who has a child, and he's too busy to be there, and the, and the child grows up and becomes just like him, and they don't have a relationship. And um, he's like, that's, that's his favorite song. And I, and I, you know, naive, I'm like, why? He goes, oh, because I was never home, and so that was his favorite song. I was never there for them. I'm like, whoa, this is kind of heavy and deep. And then he continued, and he said, success has its price, and you need to be willing to pay it, whether it's your health or your family. And I paid with both. I didn't see it then, but I see it now. I was like, wow. Like, first this guy is telling me all this advice that actually makes sense in what I'm experiencing. This other guy being like, you have to choose. And I felt like I was listening to men who had made deals with the devil about what their life was going to be about. And it was like something I came back and I shared with my home group, and it was very, very powerful. So that's the first story. The second story from Wikipedia, but also from a movie that was a 1981 Oscar winner, A Chariots of Fire, is about the 1924 Olympics in Paris and Eric Lytle. You may know this man. He's Scottish, um, the Flying Scotsman. He was a devout Christian. He was raised as a missionary, um, and he was slated to win the 100-meter race for Great Britain in the Olympics. So it's a really big deal. But on the one hand, his missionary family was telling him, Eric, you're wasting God's gifts that he's given you. You need to be on the mission field. And what he said to them was, I believe that God has made me for a purpose, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. This is to his missionary family doing God's work, right? 
On the other hand, he had the country of Great Britain being like, wow, you need to run this race. But when they published the race time, it was actually on the Sabbath, and he said, I'm not going to run it. Now, you train for a event. That's the one you do. So he wasn't going to do the 100 meter. He would do the 400 meter instead. That's four times as long. That's not the same race. Um, And people were like, don't do that. And he said to his country, "Um, I'm not going to do that for religious reasons. He goes on, as you guys know, to win that race and set a world record. That's the part that we like as Americans. Like, oh, he won anyway. That's an awesome story. Um, uh, But the part that I didn't know about is that after he went back to China and served on the mission field, he actually died in an internment camp under the Japanese invasion. And he actually was given a chance to be released. But he actually traded places with a pregnant woman and let her be released. So he died in that camp. This is a man who embraced his identity. He knew what his work was that was God-given, whether it's on the mission field or whether it was running a race. He knew what God was about, and he was following God. Um, This is a man who knew what it was to run for the glory of the Lord, to work unto the Lord, an audience of one. And as a result, when we look at his life, we'd like to make movies about it because it's special. It's unusual. It's unique. It doesn't make sense to our culture of work. Um, And because it doesn't make sense, it points to a divine creator and a divine plan. So that's a little bit on work. Now we're going to move to rest. So for moving from work to rest, how does that happen? Uh, I don't have all the answers. I'm a sojourner with you. Um, But let's talk about some things that I think scripture says and some things that we can apply in our lives. So God worked six days, and then on the seventh day, he rested. Why did the creator of the universe rest? Any ideas? He was tired? Why why did he rest? Thoughts? It's confounding, isn't it? If you actually have the power to create the world, like, why would you need to rest? He probably wasn't tired, but it was enough to work the six days and to rest the seventh day. He created the Sabbath so he could enjoy his creation, so he could sit back and say, this is good. What I've done is good. Um, He liked it because... He knew it was good to work, but he also knew it was good to rest. So as we serve a God and take the mindset of our creator God, who didn't work 24-7, unlike Silicon Valley, he took a Sabbath. He didn't rest because he was tired, but because he felt it was the right rhythm, the right cadence, how he created us to be. Um, How can we actually say yes to that invitation? Because his invitation for rest is to come, to trust, and to rest. Um, And in Matthew, it says, do not worry about tomorrow because tomorrow will take care of itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. And I often think, gosh, if I really live that way, because I like to premeditate what's going to happen. Like I I actually like told Colin when we're dating, like, I don't know if you want to date me because I actually might gain weight later on in life. So you need to know that right now. He's like, what are you talking about? So I like to premeditate worries like that might happen in the future. I'm like, you don't know. After I have three babies, I don't know what's going to happen. Um, so I like to worry about what hasn't happened yet so that I can be in control because then I can prepare for it or I've, like, adjusted your expectations. Um, and I think what God is saying, like, each day has enough for itself, and I am sufficient for you. I create a day. I create a night. You actually have a circadian rhythm. They've tested these things. You actually are sleepy at certain times of the day. Like, that is the design of your body to rest. 
um, on a daily basis, on a weekly basis, in the Advent season, in the Lenten season, there is this rhythm. So, it's an invitation to come. But when we stay up late at night, like I often do, uh, because I'm a night owl, when we don't take a break from work, but we keep on working through the week, when we rush our way through Christmas, what are we saying? I think we're saying to God, I don't like your design for rest, and I think I can actually keep on going, like the Energizer Bunny. And what we're saying is, God, not your will be done on earth, but my list be done. Um, And I think that's a helpful thing to think about, because really, like, which one makes more sense? Um, In the moment, it may not seem like that, because there's a lot of things to be done. So resting in the Sabbath, that's the first way that God has actually designed for us to rest. There's a second way that God designed for us to rest, and that's in partnering with God's purpose. This is a little bit hard to understand, but what I mean by that is when we look at Eric Lytle and we think about trust, who do you think he trusted in? The British government, his family's approval? He trusted in God. And so if you look at the blueprint of his life, it has God written all over it. So when we look at um, the passage that we're studying today, it talks about, Come unto me, all who are weak, weary and heavy laden, gentle am I, humble in heart. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for, I, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So when we think about coming to Jesus, we have to make that choice. You have the circadian rhythm. Okay, I'm going to choose to honor the Sabbath or to sleep at night or to um, observe Advent. But then you have this question of trust. Do you feel like God is trustworthy? Can that be the case? And I think what's interesting is that as Americans, when we think about the yoke passage, we're like, oh, that doesn't sound like a good trade because a yoke is, a be- is for a beast of burden, and I don't want to be a burden beast. I want to be a free agent. I'm American. I want to do what I want. Um, but the reality is everybody has a yoke. We have a yoke around us now. The question is whose yoke are you wearing? What master are you serving? And when you think about my stories of the gentleman at the dinner table and Eric Lytle, like Eric Lytle was clearly serving the Lord, and the yoke he was wearing was God's. Um, And I'm not sure what yoke you're wearing this morning, but is it your job? Is it family? Is it um, giving your kids the best? Like, what master are you trying to serve? Is it comfort? And what would it mean to work for an audience of one like Eric? Um, to say, when I blank, when I run, I feel his pleasure, and know that that's God-given. So it's possible to rest even as we work because we're aligned with his purposes, like Eric did. Like, training for a Olympics is not actually easy. I've never done it, but I think it's probably not that easy. I did train for a 10-mile race, and it takes a lot of time and persistence and energy. So there is work to be done, but when you're aligned with God's purposes, there's something magical about feeling his pleasure or feeling his purpose in what we're doing. Um, the other thing that helps us as we're actually trying to trust God is, and remember whose yoke we're wearing, is community. So we just study community and multiply. And community is so important to our ability to identify where God is and what his purpose is so we can be aligned with it. So I'm going to share with you a Facebook post I did the Friday after Thanksgiving. Um, how many of you like to post on Facebook? Yes. I see your post. Um, So this is my post, Priscilla. I am not my best self. Rude mom just called me selfish at the Y while waiting in line for the kids' pool. My kids were in the pool. My brother and Micah swapped places with me and Candela. 
to swim with my littlest one, Ming, and rude mom doesn't care to know that Kainoa, my nephews, also got out of the pool to make room for her. In other words, there was not enough time, we had to get out, and you, you're encouraged, they were encouraging you to make room for people who hadn't swum yet. I have to tell you this because I'm still upset about it, as you can see. And so you don't have to get out because you came on time, you got your ticket, you waited in line, you're in the pool. But there are these families that you, you feel bad for them. So half of my family got out of the pool, was shivering by the side, and just waiting for the rest of us to finish um, so that this other family could go in. And the same mom, when she gets in the pool, called me selfish because all she saw was me getting in the pool trading places with my brother. And I was so mad. And my mom was with me all day long. And she's like, I noticed that that really bothers you. What's, what's the issue? I'm like, I don't know. Maybe it's justice. I'm not sure. I tried to explain to her, but she didn't want to hear to me. She just said, talk to the hand. It was really upsetting. Um, so when Colin picked me up from the Y, he said, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm posting to Facebook before you can stop me. Um, so these are the responses that I, I got from a high school friend. It said, time to show her gangster mom. <laughs> and then from someone in my home group, Jody. It says, she obviously doesn't know you. Don't worry about her, Taba. That's not the kind of person you want approval from. And, you know, when I saw that post, which was actually four hours later from when the event, because I was doing for four hours, I was like, that's really the hard issue here, is I want this woman's approval. I don't even know who she is. I call her rude mom at the Y. Um, I may see her again, but, like, I wanted her approval. I wanted her to understand that my family is a good family. My kids are shivering on the side to make room for you, but you don't want to, like, that was important to me. Um, So at the time, the yoke I was wearing was people's approval. Uh, And so when you actually are with a community of people who know you and see your struggles and understand you, they can help point you to God. So the last point on the resting is how do we rest when we are heavy laden? This is a hard one. What is God's yoke like then? He says, I'm gentle, I'm humble, and you'll find rest for your souls. This is not an easy topic, and I don't take it lightly, and I don't claim to know exactly what the right answer is, because we all have our own struggles and our own heaviness. There's probably some struggles in this room today when we're faced with the fact that uh, the holidays can be especially hard if we've lost people, or if we have dreams that have been disappointed, um, a child that we've been waiting for that never came, or a marriage that hasn't been exactly what we wanted it to be. I don't have all the answers for that. But what I do know is God says to come, to trust, and to rest. And that somewhere in that process, he's going to do something for us. So the last story I want to share with you is about my son Micah, who's nine years old. And um, he's an amazing kid. I love him dearly. Uh, He's gifted in many ways. He's a wonderful big brother. He loves his family. Um, He values fairness and generosity And he's also gifted at sports. But he struggles with anxiety. And just to give you a flavor of this, you may not know this. If you've been in children's church, you know this. Like, um, transition is hard for him. He has high anxiety. And when he was a toddler, I used to buy several versions of his shoes and uh, in advanced sizes and then try to beat them up so they look used and worn. And then when he'd grow out of one, at night I would swap them out. So in the morning, he'd be like, those are my shoes, but they actually don't pinch my toes anymore. I had to do this for, like, until they stopped making this pair of shoes. Because otherwise, he would literally, like, freak out. He would not put them on. He would not step out of the house. Um, another example of this is uh, when he would get a haircut. Well, he wouldn't get a haircut because he was too terrified. He would sc- scream and lash out, and he couldn't 
be still, so it was actually a danger to him. So I would cut his hair while he was sleeping. So if you see pictures of him, he's got like rock star hair because it's very jagged. Um, so the, the stories go on, but you get the, the feeling of this. Well, fast forward to um, a couple of months ago. We had been struggling with a family about like, what do we do about the Sabbath and rest? Because he does have sports. And sports have been a great way for him to feel God's pleasure, to see that he's been, he has something he can be confident in. And a lot of them happen on Sundays. So one of the things we decided as a family to do is to go to church. Or I would take him to church on Sundays where he would miss church at a church around the corner from us. And it's a church where he has a lot of kids he knows. There are a lot of intervarsity families there, so it feels, like, comfortable for him. But he won't go to children's church. He has to stay in big church with me because he doesn't want to be in that new environment. Um, and the interesting thing about this is it felt like, God, how do I be faithful in this honoring of the Sabbath with my son? I want to teach him good um, habits. And it's been interesting because through sitting with him through adult church, he's actually gotten a lot out of adult church. And every time we go, he asks me about repentance. What does that mean? Or how can a church be a church if it has walls? And like all these really interesting conversations that wouldn't have come up otherwise. Um, And then one time there was communion, and and I said, you know, you're going to go up for a blessing but not take communion because that's for people who believe in Jesus and have decided to accept him. And, And he's like, oh, okay. So later on he asked about that, like, what do you need to do to have communion? And then a month later, he said, I'm ready to take communion. I was like, wow, as a mom, you know, the hardest work we do is actually giving birth to our kids. Like, that is the hardest emotional, mental, like, and then there's nothing better than hearing your kids say that. I'm getting emotional thinking about it. So he said that to me. I was like, oh, my gosh, like, why are you saying this? Do you know what it means? And he said, yeah, I know what it means. And, and I go, well, why? Why did you decide to make this decision? And he said, well, I think that when I think back to our last Christmas vacation in Honolulu, where um, I took him to Blue Waters, which is a church um, with Jordan Singh and Sonia Singh, some family friends of ours, we had a power struggle because we always have a power struggle when he has anxiety and I force him to go outside of his comfort zone. I had to leave him in the car. Like there was a lot of yelling and screaming, put the other kids in Sunday school, came back and got him, made him go to Sunday school. And then, um, a friend of ours, husband, who was actually not a believer. Um, and his wife, my friend Carrie became a believer through our friendship over time. Um, said to me, you know, your son looks really anxious. I'm like, yes, he is. Uh, and, and he goes, I think you should get prayer for him. I was like, wow, Billy, that's, really amazing that you're saying to that. So he was like being Jesus to me. So he's like, I'm going to go get him from Sunday school, and then they're going to have prayer time, and I'm going to bring him up. So we brought him up to have prayer, and the prayer team prayed for him, just really affirming words and um, a lot of things that made sense to all of us. Nothing really breakthrough. But what Micah said almost a year later is, you know, when that man prayed for me, I felt different inside. I felt like something in me changed. And, and he kept saying, I don't have the words, I don't have the words. But these are the words that he told me. Something in me changed. And I feel like I'm different now. Um, not all problems are solved, like, uh, but, but I think that that is a really interesting thing where something that has been a burden for our family and for him, for his life, is actually the way that Jesus comes and meets my son in a way that is transformational so he can understand what does it mean to serve a God who says, come, trust, and I'll give you rest. So I'm going to close now by asking you to look in your bulletin. So in your bulletin, I have at the bottom a little response. 
And um, if we put that up there, the questions are, this Advent season, what is your Advent commitment? How are you going to rest? I am going to rest in blank. And then my Christmas not-to-do list is blank. I know these are hard questions, so I actually filled it out for you, for me. So let's take a look at that. My Advent commitment is to rest in working for an audience of one, God, not my boss or my peers. And then my Christmas not-to-do list is not wrapping presents. (laughs) I really don't like wrapping presents. Um, There are a lot of things I like about Christmas, but I notice when I wrap presents, I get... I stay up late, which is another thing. I'm out of the circadian rhythm. And then I'm actually, like, grumpy the next day, and then I'm mean, and then it just snowballs, and then I have more. It just is not good. So this Christmas, I'm just not going to wrap presents. I don't know how that will go. I'll report back after December 25th. Um, So if you could actually take the bulletin and fill that out. Um, And I'm going to pray for us and ask the worship team to come up. Um, So let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, in this Advent season, make our hearts keenly aware of the great joy that Christmas brings. Give us this season of preparation, prayer, and penitence, longing, and fulfillment, darkness, and light, repentance, and grace. Help us in the midst of our work to reflect not busyness, tiredness, or stress, but have that be replaced with the fruits of living in your will, peace, rest, and joy. And as we prepare for this season, let's think about Mary, the imperfect but perfect storybook tale. In hindsight, she is the revered mother of Jesus, the Son of God, but in her time, she was a pregnant teen out of wedlock. Help us to understand, how did Mary come to God? How did she take God's yoke upon her? How did she serve an audience of one? Her work was difficult. She was heavy laden. How did she come, trust, and rest as she prepared for the original Advent and Christmas Day? In Jesus' name, amen.